Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This week, I'm speaking with Dr. Kelly Lane, an incoming assistant professor at the University of Minnesota, about her research studying how we teach STEM, and specifically biology. This is episode 45 of On Tenure Tracks. Mm-hmm. 
But the idea that not only does this help us give us some information about how we're mentoring students during this time of social distancing, but also thinking about moving after COVID, what the world looks like then, yeah. there's a lot of issues with remote mentorship for students with disabilities or students that have to take a semester off to go home with their, to take care of aging parents or sick kids. Yeah. Um, and looking at how we can use the impact of this social distancing to inform the mentoring choices we make for students in the future. Mm. So it's really interesting. Like you went from, like, how did you how did you go from doing biology into this kind of like social psychology and sociology of of higher ed? I mean, it's hard to think of two more disparate <laughs> kinds of disciplines. But you, you, I'm all for de-siloing, and it sounds like you have just demolished <laughs> the silos to start doing this work. That's like, how did how were you able to do that? Yeah, so I entered uh, graduate school. I entered my PhD. Um, intending to do a PhD in genetics, which is what my PhD is in, mm-hmm. my PhD is genetics, and go into genetics department. And I always had wanted to go to graduate school because I liked teaching and mentoring, especially. I liked that one-on-one mentorship with students mm-hmm. um, and didn't have the patience required for the states at K-12. So <laughs> I was like, you know what? Me and my first-gen status, I have no idea what grad school is like. I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. So like, I'll teach college. Yeah. Um, and I got into my graduate program and had a mismatch with an advisor. It's what I think of it now. I think at the time I had a, a rougher time understanding it, but it was just my advisor's expectations and what I wanted my graduate training to look like were very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to find a new lab after a year in mm-hmm. graduate school, which for... A biology, a science PhD student is a big hit. Yeah. Um, usually you're in grad school for five or six years, so mm-hmm. basically losing a year on a project is really challenging. Yeah. And I went through a lot of soul searching about, like, why am I even here? Why am I doing this? And I was like, I really like teaching. I really like mentoring. Let me see what I need to do to do that. Mm-hmm. And there were faculty at my institution that did discipline-based education research. Mm-hmm. So that's faculty with PhDs in a STEM discipline, mm-hmm. who then study how we teach that discipline at the college level. And I was like, mind was blown. I didn't know this was a thing. <laughs> I, I didn't know so, that was a thing until just now. <laughs> yeah, it's a growing field. Um, physics really took it off way back uh-huh. in like the 70s, and biology yeah. took it off, and chemistry too. Um, huh. But I got super pumped about it. I thought them out, and I was like, how do I do this? And what my program allowed me to do was do a split dissertation where two of my dissertation chapters are in traditional genetics Mm -hmm. and one is in education research. And then I was able to transition to a full um, discipline-based education research postdoc um, after I graduated. And now I'm moving on to a faculty position doing the same thing. Oh, wow. Good for you. Congratulations. I'm in a department that is all deeper. My department is all discipline-based education research and, and faculty who teach that's so ex- that's so exciting! Like, congratulations! That's awesome. Thank <laughs> you. Um, so it's funny. Like, I earlier this academic year, before everything started to go downhill, um, one of my intro social classes were asking me about like how do we get trained to teach, and I I was like, you would be shocked. <laughs> you would you would you'd be horrified if you knew how little training like most professors have 
like I, I mean, I went to Bowling Green for grad school. We had a class, and then we were expected to teach. Um, after we took the class, every, I mean, we taught like one section, like an eighty student section, but still, um, and that was considered like excessive. And, and if you wanted to do more than that, you were kind of frowned upon too. Um, and so my students were just like baffled. <laughs> like the teachers they had in high school had to go through, like have, have an entire degree in education and all this training. And we're just like, mm, no. <laughs> I mean, most, most teaching assistants, graduate teaching assistants actually have like at best, like the week before the semester starts of training where they do some kind of high intensive workshop for a couple of days. Um, mm-hmm. Some programs go so far as like a once a week seminar over the course of the semester. Um, but really getting any more training than that is exceedingly rare. It's yeah. throw the baby in and see if it can swim. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Which is horrifying. Right. I mean, especially yeah, when you think about it. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And, you know, being expected to develop new classes to, to teach and like all the new preps and stuff, there's no, there's no training behind any of that, right? If I wanted to, I'm, I'm trying to develop a program evaluation course. I'm, I took one 12 years ago, maybe more than that. Uh, I don't have any training for that. And so it's just bizarre that, like, the entire industry relies on us to kind of just fake it until you make it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I this mean, is... Think of the vast number of things that faculty don't get training on. Managing budgets, mentoring students, mm-hmm. teaching, like, <laughs> basically being upper management for a lab. Like, you have to be your own HR department if you're running a lab. Like, what... It... Marketing. Trying to promote yeah. yourself. Uh now like online learning online teaching i mean it's it's remarkable so I, I all this is built up to ask you um so like with everything that's been happening with covid um as far as your research goes and your work goes have you seen like a lot of bad practices kind of exposed now for being bad practices is that something that's going on in, in your field that like so, so the pandemic happens and a lot of old systems are kind of laid bare, right? Because we have to move everything online. And so lots of, of so-called tried and true classroom techniques maybe go out the window. Um, do you see this thing really changing how, how teaching is done? My first, my first thought is ask me again in six months. Yeah. Um, I think there's actually a lot of people that are taking this opportunity to do research about online learning and mm-hmm. about what gets faculty to switch their teaching and what works and what doesn't because you're right a lot of faculty are having to abandon things like traditional exams Mm -hmm. and traditional forms of assessment and lecturing and all of that kind of thing at minimum they're having to make videos or lecture to a computer screen which faculty find awkward so they want to make it more fun for themselves and they start doing these things that we've been trying to get them to do (laughs) for years yeah Um, i think it's really exciting to see people see that there is a new another way that we can do this and be effective. I am worried, though, that because people had to rush and not really think through their classes for that, especially the first semester, maybe at mm-hmm. universities where they're going to stay online, there might be more opportunity to think through. But that two or three weeks everybody had to frantically switch over, um, I'm worried that that means they won't have done a very thorough job thinking it through and they're going to come away from this semester being like, oh, all of those techniques did not work. They were all awful. Um, so I never want to do them again. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested to see in a few months, um, and whenever this blows over, whenever we get back to what trying a, yeah. to get all the students back on campus, what people think. Um, yeah. One thing that I have seen that's a real positive, in my opinion, is a lot more faculty working together this divide and conquer approach like okay let's figure out what the content is that we want to cover in our classes and then you work on this section and i'll work on that section and we'll between the two of us we'll be able to plan both of our sections of intro biology or whatever and we'll all share resources and work together and i'm hoping that that collaboration persists because we know that that's that has a lot of potential to drive innovation forward it's when you start working with somebody else on solving problems Mm-hmm. Right, so that I think is going to be a real positive. Um, but we'll we'll have to we'll have to see if it uh, works out or if it's all backfires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean my my concern I think is maybe the opposite of yours that there are are faculty who did a poor job with the transition online and then didn't get any kind of feedback from it and we're like okay well that worked <laughs> and yeah, are just I'm going to keep things. doing things the the bad awful way um or maybe heard it was bad and just don't care because it was the easiest thing for them um but you had mentioned like this is causing people to to do things that um you've been that people in your field have been encouraging for a while so what are some of those things that this, this innovation, if I understand you correctly, like what are what are things that have been encouraged but maybe haven't been picked up on? So thinking about um, a couple of things. So doing a lot of like group projects, encouraging students to do group work so that they're able to learn from each other and really mm-hmm. instruct each other as peers rather than relying solely on the instructor. Getting new voices in your head can really help a student um, mm-hmm. make new connections and, mm-hmm. and learn in a new way. Mm-hmm. Also, kind of stepping back from this traditional lecturing format and saying, like, you're going to have to look up things on your own. You're going to have to do some work independently because when we do, those who do the work do the learning, mm-hmm. right? And so we're putting the onus on students to do more outside of class time work. Yeah. Um, and for instructors to have to prepare ahead of time. You can't just, <laughs> it's really challenging to show up. <laughs> And lecture to students when you can't guarantee that all of your students are going to be there. You have to have some kind of materials that you're actually putting together, right? You have to think through things, and that in and of itself is a small. Um, and then also, I think the way we look at assessment in higher education is terribly flawed. Yes. The best kind of assessment is the kind of assessment that encourages a student to grow afterwards, rather than this final exam that they never have to look at ever again. Um, and that may or may not be written very well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so people moving away from those kind of traditional assessments, I think, is really good. Not saying that there isn't a place for a final exam, um, but that we need to be thinking more broadly about how do we, how can we assess students, and what are we, what do we really want them to gain from our class? Yeah. Um, there's this constant battle between content coverage and skills development. And I rest very firmly on, I would rather a student be able to come away from my class being able to critically think than to have transcription of memorized, <laughs> right? Transcription of translation of DNA memorized. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of faculty are realizing that they can get, get away with teaching a lot less content because they don't have, they can't cover as much in this format. Yep. Um, and I'm like, yes. Figure 
figure out what is really important for students to learn and how we can get them to learn on their own. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of us are experiencing this, like, what's what's the point of doing what we do, right? And what's the point of what's the point of these assignments? And what's the point of of this test? And what's the point of my course evals? Like, why are we doing course evals when during a pandemic, when students have way more things on their minds? And like, what what good is that data even? You know. And so I hope that people are are really seriously rethinking like college can be so much more than just a multiple choice test. And it comes down to K-12 teacher, teacher, pre-service teacher training 101 is backwards design, right? What do you want students to get out of it? And then how do we get them there? Mm-hmm. And I think that this is forcing faculty to sit down and reflect, like, if there's three things that students can get out of this semester, what is it? And how do I get them there? And to me, that's, you know, I, I think those options that we talked about before, like, are people going to kind of think that they've done good enough or, or hate online learning or whatever? I think that it's going to be, depending on the faculty members, yes, all of the above is going to happen. But if we as a academic culture can come to, what do we want students to get out of this class? I'll consider this, you know, a net positive for how we operate. Yeah. And it's such a scarier proposition to think of it that way too. You know, like if you're, if I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, um, I'm teaching uh, race, class, gender, and crime in the fall. And so what are the three things that I want to get out of that? That's a lot scarier than like, okay, here are the books I'm going to use. They're going to fingers crossed, read the books. (laughs) And here are some questions about the books. And then at the end of the after four months or however many months it ends up being, uh, here's your grade. Like, I don't have to think about, like, big picture. What do I want them to learn? I think it's a lot easier both, like, in a, a literal sense of preparing a class and, like, an emotional sense to just be like, we're get, I'm going to start students through this content march because it feels less like you have this responsibility over their future. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like if we think yep. about the three things we want students to get out of your average class, they're going to be really big picture, um, life-changing kind of things, right? That's why we love the fields that we're in is because yeah. we think they're important. And that becomes really scary to be like, oh, man, if I don't teach this class well, my students are not going to understand our <laughs> entire criminal justice system, right? Yep. Like that gets real scary. <laughs> yeah, and like with that class, how can I make students less racist, sexist, and classist? <laughs> No big deal. Yeah. I can do that. Like, and <laughs> I can do that before Thanksgiving I break. I want you to think of it as like, I'm going to have students work through these four books I want them to read. <laughs> yeah, let's unpack all of the all of the terrible things that have happened to you in your life because of the world that we live in. And then try to do the opposite of that. Like, that's, that's really, I mean, it's, but, you know, you're absolutely right. Like, that's how we should be thinking about our classes because then it, I mean, would you agree that it, it it also forces us to treat the students with more respect. Yeah, I I think one of my biggest pet peeves is when professors call their students kids because it's just inaccurate. Yeah. And a lot of times there are people, you know, I've had a person in a lab class over the age of 50. Like, mm-hmm. I was 24. <laughs> like, I would never call that person a kid, right? And it allows us to infantilize our students and think of them as incapable. Mm -hmm. And they are 
adults, they are living on their own, even the ones that are your traditional college student, and very few college students in the grand scheme of the U.S. actually are traditional college students. Mm-hmm. Like we need to realize that we can give them big, meaty tasks to take on. And mm-hmm. I think right now, with when you look at the student debt crisis and all these other things, there's a lot of questions about what even is the point of college. Mm-hmm. And when I think of what I got out of college and what I want my students to get out of college, it's critical thinking skills and an awareness of the world that they wouldn't get if they stayed in their hometown and didn't interact with other people for their lives. Like, it's a chance to learn about the world. And we need to figure out how we get back to that mission and make college useful again. Mm-hmm. And not just busy work, right? Like, busy And not just to get that piece of paper <laughs> that lets you get that extra $5,000 a year yeah. out of some company. Yeah, no. Like, when when my students tell me that C's get degrees, like, it makes me so upset. And I, I don't know how many how much time I've wasted in class, like, ranting about, like, that is that is not why you're here. That, this is not why you're paying all this money to come to a private university just to graduate with a 2.0 and then flaunt it. Like, you're not going to go to a job interview with your, you know, your 2.03 GPA, and, and the person interviewing you isn't going to be like, a 2.03, did you... Did you do that without even studying? <laughs> and, and you're going to be like, hell yeah, man. And they're going to high five you. And, <laughs> and you're going to be the new vice president of the company. Like, that's not how it works, you know? And I, I try to tell them that. Um, and it just, I don't know, because I'm old, it doesn't resonate. <laughs> well, I think no matter how much we tell them that, it's not going to resonate because we're not showing them that with the way we provide them courses. Mm-hmm. What we provide them suggest to them that all that matters is that GPA at the end yeah. and that it's good enough to get by. Yeah. Right? We're not providing them courses mm-hmm. that inspire them to get critical. Yep. And and so, you know, they take what we give them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I uh, Last semester, I experimented with some, like, just taking exams away and, and research papers out of my classes. And I had them, one class did a podcast, one class made a zine. Um one class had to had to argue with me at the end of the semester for their grade, um, and when I announced this at the beginning of the year, like you could see, you could see the realization go over their faces. Like we're not going to have tests in here, hell yeah! But I have to be creative. <laughs> I <Yeah. laughs> I have to make. Now I don't. <laughs> now I don't know how I'm going to get that <laughs> marker at the end. How do I yeah. get a without knowing that I need to answer some percentage of test questions correctly. Like, what does that look like? Yep, what is it? How do you do average recording a podcast? Or how do you do... What does average look like for... uh, In one class, I had them make memorials to victims of, like, major crimes. Um, That's not something you you can do average. Like, you either do it really great or not at all. You know, and I think that (laughs) really shocked them. Um... And they all swore to me that they loved it afterwards, but I'm a little suspicious. <laughs> I one for sure was begging me. She told me that she wouldn't take any more of my classes if I didn't go back to tests and, and lit reviews. Like, well, sorry, but not really. I remember the first time I experienced a flipped classroom where our exams were all, like, long answer, and it was all you have to come to class knowing the material already and we're going to work through worksheets, right? Mm-hmm. A true flipped class. 
I hated it, mm-hmm. right? I, I was like, I do not know how to succeed in this format. Like, I have had this success format for my entire <laughs> life, and I know how to do it, and now you're telling me we're not doing it? Yep. How do I survive? Yeah. And I think the press kept being, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. And I'm like, no, never again. I never want to do this. And now that I'm in the professor position, I'm like, yes, that was such a great And it and that itself turns into its own like trial by fire kind of thing, right? Like this is weird for all of us. We're gonna do it though because you have to take chances, <laughs> and sometimes it doesn't work out, and that's okay. You're still gonna learn stuff. And I I, I think that they become so indoctrinated into like everything. Everything's gonna be on the test. You know, anything could be a, something I could be asked about. Then. Even this day where we're joking around could be like, is this going to be on the test? And like, that's kind of sad, right? It just—it's not the mission. Um, yeah, you want them worried about getting the grade on the test. You want them to be worried about learning. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, how do you how do you research this? Like, how do you measure, you know, a, a biologist's efficacy? at teaching and how they're connecting with their students and even like the mentorship part of it, because that's like, that I think is maybe the most important part of what we do, right? It's how we, mm-hmm. we build those relationships. How do you, how do you measure that stuff? So there's actually a lot of different techniques. You might be familiar with a lot of them. We, you know, a lot of our approaches we borrow from sociology and anthropology, um, organizational management, all those kinds of fields we learn from mm-hmm. and, and how we do things. There's, you know, I'd say the bread and butter of our field are surveys, interviews, and concepts, inventories mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. other types of assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately, the outcomes we're looking for are student learning gains, right? And especially when you're looking at undergraduates. For me, the outcomes I'm looking for are more longitudinal, right? Mm-hmm. Do graduates get the jobs that they want to have? Yeah. Do they get those jobs? Do they graduate? Mm-hmm. Do they stay in their program? Those kind of long-term outcomes, which are really easy to measure, right? You mm-hmm. just follow up with your students and yep. see who graduates and who doesn't, and that's your mm-hmm. outcome yep. variable. Um, with student learning, there's a lot of different... Everything from concept inventories to, which is a very technical term actually, to other types of assessment to understand, like, do do students understand this concept? Mm-hmm. Um, they're highly researched questions to make sure that we're asking them without any kind of bias or um, promoting misconceptions that students have and making sure that we're asking them in a way that students really have to understand that concept in mm-hmm. order to get it correct. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of research that goes into those kinds of assessments, and so that's a common outcome where we, on the final exam, students have, or at the end of the semester, they get these um, assessments that are highly researched questions, and we can see if they've learned or not over the course of the semester. So you go in the class, you change something about the way you do it, you see if students learn more mm-hmm. than in a controlled classroom or in the previous semester where they didn't do something. Mm-hmm. I am a heavily qualitative researcher, actually, so... I do a lot of interviews and mm-hmm. long answer survey questions okay. where you go in then and look for what people say and what their experiences are and look for common threads 
are people all having some kind of experience or is the experience highly personal and people are having very different experiences and what can we learn from the experience and the knowledge that they're sharing with us about how to improve. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that for me is a lot of interviewing mm-hmm. of graduates and faculty. It just seems like I'm I'm interested in the mentorship side because it's like I said I I think it's one of the most important things that we do and it, trying to figure out how to do that online has been a nightmare, honestly. Um, but just like so much of it seems, I'm thinking about all the faculty that I interacted with um, in grad school, and it seems like so much of it is personality based. And so I'm curious, like how how can you control for even qualitatively, like here's a professor who's kind of a <laughs> uh, kind of awful about everything and but is mentoring but uh, you know his his mentees seem to to rave about him and and like I'm just curious like how do you factor in those kind of I mean because we're professors right so we're all kind of weird in in different ways like like how can you how can you account for these these personality differences that that kind of manifest in how people mentor? Yeah, so there are, there, I mean, you can imagine cases where, you know, somebody's sense of humor doesn't match up, so you don't like them very much as an advisor, but in, it's really about the questions that you ask. I'm not going to go in and, I'm personally not interested in that. That may be an actually really interesting research mm-hmm. topic to go see if the way advisors use humor and their mentoring really puts mm-hmm. off students or not. I don't know. Um it all comes back to looking at, like, the outcome variables. So a lot of it for me is, like, are are the students saying that they're happy with their advisor? Do they feel that they're learning things? Do we see that they persist and do they get jobs that they want, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is just going in and asking the students, like, are are you satisfied with your mentorship? Mm-hmm. And what does that look like or mm-hmm. not look like? Okay. Right? And, and, you know, there are some common things that you can think of. Um, graduate students have to deal with an extraordinary amount of failure Mm-hmm. in graduate school. I actually have a friend who studies failure and how you bounce back from failure. Oh, wow. Um, That's really interesting. In, gradu- in graduate school and in undergraduate research. Yeah. When you're a researcher, how do you deal with all the rejection and failure that we experience? And so you can imagine a good mentor is one that supports their students through that failure and doesn't beat them down, mm-hmm. right? Somebody who builds them up and helps them overcome failure. So you can go in and ask graduate students, you know, what are some times that you've experienced failure in graduate school? What um, mechanisms did you use to cope with that failure? We mm-hmm. can look at if they're good or bad coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. You know, did you get support in dealing with that failure? What did that look like? Mm-hmm. And if there's extraordinary absence of that mentor, then you can be like, well, is mentoring even really happening? Yeah. And how can we improve that? You know, so... A lot of these things are very context specific, right? Yeah, is yeah. it are you a good mentor in the scenario of X is ultimately the question. Okay. So, yeah, so I I I get to what you're what you're going for here. So it has less to do with what I was I guess I just I guess I just misunderstood where you were coming from with it. But yeah, I mean that makes perfect sense and like it would be really interesting to to see like what what are the variables associated with persistence because like you said grad school is just like a gauntlet of really difficult and challenging experiences that are kind of buttressed by massive victories and like what hopefully massive victories right um and so what 
can keep students going from like failure to failure to failure to something positive to failure to failure like like what what goes into that persistence i wonder yeah and and then there's also you know there's other things we can go in and look at we can go in and see like do you get support in learning how to write from your mentor what does that support look like or what does it not look like what do you wish it looked like right um we can go in and actually ask that mentor, like, what are the steps that you take to support mm-hmm. writing in your students? And, and we can see if there's different approaches that mentors take and mm-hmm. how that affects their mentees. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, I don't think the goal, the goal of studying education and mentorship, I never think of it as telling, coming out the end and saying, like, this is what the perfect mentor looks yeah. like, or this is what the perfect class format looks like, because that we're never going to get there. That's impossible. Yeah, yeah, for people, sure. People. Yeah, <laughs> yep. yeah. Um, <laughs> but we can start poking at things and thinking about do's and don'ts, right? Yeah. Like, general principles of what can help a student learn something, mm-hmm. or what can help keep a mentee with a good work-life balance um and we can look at like attitudes and behaviors that we need to weed out of higher education Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah uh what i was going to say was that the the social psychology of like what makes a good department run seems like it would be an interesting research question too right thinking about like the different mentorship attitudes and, and and i guess just like general like differences in teaching philosophies that faculty have and how they're able to make that work, or do they make that work within their department? Like, given all the different roles that we have to play with, like who teaches which required classes, and and all, and who's the chair, and what what uh, how much power and influence does the chair have over departmental culture? Like, that's it, super interesting, though. Yeah, so it's so interesting that there's like a whole field about it. <laughs> a whole, whole field. I think are things that people don't think about being able to research, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And so many of us in education get frustrated, like education research get frustrated with our findings and our results because we're like, oh, this is such a duh finding. Yeah. It's called duh finding. It's yeah. what everybody knows. Like, but there are lots of things that everybody thinks they know that we have no data to support being true, right? Yep. So a lot of the work we do is really important to separate that, like, no, this is what actually happens all the time versus this mm-hmm. is how it is at your department. <laughs> That's not how it is, right? And yeah. Because we can only build, like, it's giving us data to make these choices off of that right now we mostly use instinct and experience to do. Mm-hmm. And one of the big areas of doing that is called institution is institutional change. And a big unit of institutional change research is looking at department dynamics. Yeah. Right? What is department climate towards teaching? How does that influence instructors? And that's actually a lot of the work that I'm doing in my postdoc position right now before Mm -hmm. I transfer into full-time for faculty position um, is doing, I look at social networks of departments. Who Mm -hmm. talks to who about teaching and why do they talk to those people? Mm -hmm. Do we have island faculty that are essentially abandoned out of the knowledge loop. Yeah. Where does the department head fall into that? How do these people in positions of power interplay with how knowledge is spread about teaching through a department? Yeah. And how does that impact who teaches in what way? Um, and because that, that kind of data lets us go in and say, like, okay, this department is not teaching the way we want it to. Yeah. We know that these elements of departments are important for how we choose to teach. What does that look like in this 
department that's not doing what we want and how do we fix it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're, you're like preaching to the converted, I think. Like, I am so tired of how siloed things are. And I think, like, I, I hate to frame it like this, but, like, one of the, I guess, the silver lining in the cloud right now is that online education means that we can de-silo more. Um, and, like, we, like, what you were talking about, right? Like, having to having to rely on others, either at our school or more likely probably just friends that we have that teach on our discipline that are at other schools. Um, I think that breaks down a lot of the barriers about like, well, my department does things this way. And, and, you know, here's somebody that's a, a friend teaching at another school that does it something, does something completely different. And like, I think we're able now to see more of that stuff and then um, kind of implement it ourselves. And like, just thinking about like power that faculty have, right? Like the fact that we don't get trained in how to teach and then are dumped into disciplines that are, are super competitive and super isolated, <laughs> right? Every, de- every dean says they love interdisciplinary research and, and teaching, but secretly don't. My dean excluded from this, if you ever hear this, Paul. <laughs> and like if we, if we had this knowledge of like how people at other schools do things, then I think that we would all benefit from that, right? I think we'd all be able to stand up to our administration more. I think we'd have a better idea of like what assessment should look like. Um, and I think that people on the fringes, right? Like I teach a four four. Um, I'm at a school most people have never heard of. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I I am doing this virtual. Prim conference in part and what I've been telling people is that like it's it's a it's a boon to people like me who don't have a um, several thousand dollar travel budget in my department or people who are you know adjuncts or, or visiting or even grad students right who whose travel budget may be like 50 bucks from their department and that is beneficial right because now this is a whole population in my discipline who get to participate in the conference, have their voices heard that they might not have otherwise been able to, to do. And I think that makes everything better. And it, it sounds like when you're thinking about how to improve how classrooms function, then it's really about kind of turning that power upside down, right? Yeah. There's so many things that you said that I'm like, yeah, I've got a whole rant prepared about this. <laughs> please, please rant. This is better when people rant. <laughs> Well, you've, you've asked the right person. Please, um, rant away. So that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed about this, what you're saying is this cross-university conversation about teaching. So my lens is a little bit biased on this because I am in, entrenched in the education, biology education research community, mm-hmm. right? But I'm actually a member of the Society for Advancement of Biology Education Research, um, which is a... a your standard society um, that <laughs> looks at biology education in higher ed. Yep. And one of the things I've appreciated about their listserv is that it's always kind of like this, but I feel like it, since COVID it's exploded where people will be like, you know, listserv will be like, I need to figure out how to teach this online. And it, everybody's like, here, you know, <laughs> like here's how we're doing it here. And there's all of this cross-sharing of resources yep. between people who've never met and whose mm-hmm. institutions may be vastly different on different sides of the country. And it's yep. just because everybody's like, just like trying to do their best and get through it, yeah. right? Yep. And um, 
I think that's that's what I mean by this like collaborative culture yeah. that's coming out of this that I'm really excited it's to see. So it's so cool. Yeah. And I, I do think another thing that you mentioned was just talking about how we teach as faculty. The reason I'm so excited about this collaborative culture is because I I say this a lot and it's a little bit overly spicy, but it's you know, kind of like a catchphrase is that like academic freedom is the bane of good teaching. Right? <laughs> we we are so so many people go into academia because they're like, I can do whatever I want. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get into the classroom, we're like, I can do whatever I want. And the second somebody suggests that maybe you should do it differently, people get really defensive. Because like, no, I have my academic freedom to do what I want to do and how I want to do it. Um, <laughs> and I think that academic freedom is wonderful and it's great in research and, and it allows people to experiment and play and do really cool things and be creative. But sometimes there are bad ways to teach, <laughs> right? And should we just let faculty do that? Mm-hmm. And I think that this collaborative culture that I'm seeing coming out in places because of this massive transition we're all going through might help break down some of that, right? And tell people, like, you can ask for help when it comes to your teaching. And just because you're not teaching the best or how somebody else is teaching, whatever the best means, yeah. right? Doesn't mean you're doing a bad job. It just means we should be constantly improving. Mm-hmm. I think of it like I approach bench methods. Like in science, when when you're trying a new method at the bench and it doesn't work, you don't say like, well, that method doesn't work. You go in and you try and fix it and you fiddle with it and you play with it <laughs> and see if you can make it better a little bit at a time, right? It's the same thing about teaching. And I think this collaborative culture is hopefully will ultimately encourage more of that like tweaking and changing and getting ideas from new people and bouncing ideas off of people and letting them letting teaching become this collaborative, non-siloed academic freedom bubble that we mm-hmm. have. Um, I, I like that you, you said that you're, you're biased because a question that I've asked several people on here before um, has been about, I think, a generational shift in how we view um, objectivity. And so one thing, I mean, when I was in grad school, it's drilled into my head, right? Like, the numbers are the numbers, the data doesn't lie, you leave your biases at the door, like all of that, all those types of cliches, right? Um, and now a generation of new PhDs coming up after me, um, I think strongly disagree with that <laughs> um, to, to very moderately, well, almost like tongue in cheek, right? Like, well, you know, like, maybe you can be objective. And so I'm just, I'm curious from, from a, a STEM perspective, right? Where I think objectivity means something very different in your work, at least on the, on the biology side, not so much the educational research mm-hmm. side. Um, what's your view on that? What do you think about that? I, <laughs> the heavy I sigh is get... not is foreboding. <laughs> I'm sorry, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it again. <laughs> um, I think objectivity is a myth. <laughs> yes. Um, gotcha. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's true even even in bench science. So a lot of my bench science was, was 
bioinformatics, it was transcriptomics, big data, exploratory, descriptive kind of stuff, mm-hmm. right? So even then, like, what I paid attention to in the data was biased by what I found interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And so that would, would be what got published. Yep. Um, and, like, ultimately, raw numbers don't lie, but if you ask three statisticians how to do something, they all come up with a different answer. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. also, the choices you make there can can bias your results and bias your interpretation. And we always talk about interpreting results. That is inherently a biased process. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, I think there are, there are, there hits a point Mm -hmm. where you know so much about something that the bias has become washed out. Yeah. Right. I think when we think about vaccines and GMOs and climate change, like at the end of the day, when you've got hundreds and hundreds of studies and hundreds of hundreds of people that are coming to the same conclusions, like at that point, the bias has been washed out. Right. And I think there are ways to protect ourselves against bias in science. Mm-hmm. But I think when you think about what gets studied mm-hmm. is bias. What gets followed up on is biased. Who gets to study what yes. is biased when you think about racial and gender disparities or what what even gets to get studied right i mean in sociology Mm -hmm. um i remember hearing like i took a a course on domestic violence um in grad school and just hearing these horror stories of people trying to to study violence in same-sex relationships in the 70s and 80s and being shot down and being told by irbs um nobody would care about this why why on earth would you ever want to study this or like today, like that seems monstrous, right? But certainly, there's an IRB out there that I'm sure would have that same that same thing. But, but yeah, but I mean, the point is like there are topics that I think get pushed aside because of objectivity. Yeah, I mean, I think when you think about the biomedical field mm-hmm. and women, right? Heart disease women has not been well studied. We use mm-hmm. heart disease studies all done in men. Mm-hmm. Women's reproductive, you know, menstruation. And all of that has been terribly studied because mm-hmm. the people historically studying it have been men. So they're biased by questions that interest them and are pertinent to them. Yeah. Right? Which is why representation in science is so important because it drives what questions we ask. Mm-hmm. So why ultimately numbers can't lie, there's bias into what questions get asked yeah. and the interpretation of those numbers at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I say when you hit a bulk of evidence, yeah. So much data. Yep. But the bias gets washed out. But when we think about the field, generally speaking, bias mm-hmm. is something we need to live with. And as a primarily qualitative researcher, what I love about doing qualitative research is when you talk to qualitative people, a lot of them tell you it's not about not being biased. It's about acknowledging that you're biased and actively combating against that in your analysis. And I think that's something we can do in every field, yep. mm-hmm. is acknowledge our biases and make sure that we are admitting them mm-hmm. and actively trying to figure out how we combat them in our data. And a lot of that is asking other people to look at it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by when you get a bulk of data, a lot of different people have looked at it, so the bias yep. gets washed out, right? And the number one thing we can do is ask for collaboration and help and <laughs> feedback from other people so that we get to have to actively confront our biases in any kind of research. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm thinking about, like, how I how I teach my students to develop their, how to do that interpretation, right? And, and what I always tell them is that, you know, if I had 
if I had greater control over their curriculum, that I would require them to take more history and English courses. Um, <laughs> so they have uh, just a, a greater, you know, appreciation of how human beings behave and interact and, like, our hopes, like, all the, I mean, it sounds corny, right? But, like, your hopes and dreams and, and wants and loves and, and fears and all that stuff, like, you can't, you can't interpret a correlation <laughs> if you don't understand how human beings are. And if you've just been, you know, staring at your shoes for the last 20 years of your life, you don't understand how human beings behave. <laughs> and there's nothing in my class that I can do to help you get there. You know, go watch yeah, Casablanca think- and go go listen to music that you wouldn't normally listen to. Turn on TCM for a little while. Like, travel. Leave the county if you can. <laughs> Liberal arts education. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I always say that the best thing I ever did for myself as a person and for my career was I actually also have, have a bachelor's degree in biology and a bachelor's degree in classical studies. So I had to take, yeah. So You I, are like a unicorn I, in terms of, <laughs> like, <laughs> one, I can think of one other, one other person that I have talked to who has had such a, a varied background as you, um, my friend Shauna Lasur, I'll I'll tag you guys in the post. You've had you had very. I mean, you're not in the same spot, um, but Shauna has had like a thousand different jobs. I think she told me the other day that she's taught in eight different departments. Um, yeah, for a while I was thinking about going into forensic anthropology. <laughs> and I, 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 I went on the side. And, and, and dug up a Roman necropolis in Spain. <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> you um, dug up a Roman necropolis. Yeah, so I went on an archaeological dig for four weeks or something one summer to get experience and uh, dug up skeletons and learned how to... I can articulate a human hand. Yeah. Oh, it's a human hand. I know how to... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Turtles and articulate a human hand. (laughs) Yeah, that's good for... That's a a good trivial pursuit card, I guess. (laughs) Um. But I, I do think that having this varied education helps you think about the world differently. And one of my favorite classes that I took was, um, I think it was required for my general ed. Like, it checked a general ed box, and I, I took magic, science, and religion was the name of the class. And it looked throughout history as to how we have, as human beings, defined what magic is, what science is, and what religion is, and how that changes yeah. depending on your culture. And, um, and it was... It's one of the few t- books. It's right here. The book is right here. And I think it, you know, those kinds of courses and, and that kind of thinking that gives you a broader perspective on the world mm-hmm. and, and makes you confront your biases on how you view things. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I just, I started thinking about like, what my students would say if I asked them to define what magic is today. <laughs> I, I miss my, I miss them so much. Like I, I miss having this audience to just, because my, my expertise was on early adulthood. And so teaching for me was like an obvious choice, right? Like I, I get to teach with the people I'm most interested in. And so just those, just those opportunities to ask them like random questions, like do you think you're an adult? Let's talk <laughs> and just hear hear the thing that their responses. I would love to hear them 
tell me like what's something magical in your life <laughs> it would be so wonderful I would hear a lot about the Eagles winning the Super Bowl for sure I would hear yeah yep oh, what, would, what would they say that's interesting but yeah like I um my my bachelor's is in political science and then my master's was in criminology and then my PhD in social and now I'm doing this creative writing program and which has been an amazing experience like the best choice I ever made um but like being able to bring that stuff into the classroom too right and like let's talk about the importance of like what the national anthem represents or let's talk about poetry and like how how poetry actually can can feel like magic sometimes and they're like what does this have to do with crime <laughs> well it has, <laughs> it has so much to do with it it has um, to do with the human experience which is ultimately the best thing we can try to understand yeah yeah like you can't understand why people are out protesting right now i mean we're we are recording this on june 4th uh the news this morning was that uh further barriers had been put up outside the white house um that doesn't seem like there's any sign of protests slowing down right now um like you can't understand what's happening if you don't if you don't understand the people right um if you don't want to make an effort to understand the people then you're never going to solve any problems and like how how are our students going to solve problems if they don't want to it's all very yeah and i think asking students to think for themselves and not rely on us to provide them the answers is so important because you know when we look at how i was taught american history it was extremely biased oh yeah um and i grew up in a in a democratic state (laughs) or democratic (laughs) area right yeah and it's still the the way we teach kids in Uh that case about our history and about why people do the things that they do Mm -hmm. we take that for granted as kids and we take that as truth and it's when they you become a young adult and you we can start pushing them to be like what 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 does it mean for something to be true Mm -hmm. right um and i think that really helped would you know i think when, when you think about all these things going on in the world that's those are the kinds of things that we need to be teaching each other Mm -hmm. yeah i uh in the fall i taught a course on revolutions um because i'm I'm obsessed with this topic of like how social movements operate um and and what causes some social movements to kind of take off like a rocket um i guess literally in some cases and others to to fizzle out Uh, and so in the first half i love your reading this (laughs) (laughs) so i got to teach oh man i got to i started with the english civil war and these are like these are mostly criminology and sociology students who who abhor taking history classes outside of what they're required to for their gen ed and so i'm like let's talk about these christian anarchists from england in the 1670s and and go from there and they're like what is happening (laughs) why are you doing this and like i ran through so with everyone that I taught, I made it up to the military conflict and then stopped, right? Because most history classes, in my experience at least, has covered the military side of it. And I, I think we get way, way, way too much of that in general. So for like the American Revolution, I covered um, like the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party. And then some of the, like the, 
the logic behind the constitutional conventions and the run-up to it and like each domino that set up the declaration of independence like they didn't know that that individual colonies declared independence first they didn't they didn't know that up until like january 1776 you know there were a lot of people who were still begging to stay in yeah. in england like they they didn't get that and the french revolution and french and haiti or france and haiti were the best too because like if you've never read the haitian declaration of independence i strongly recommend it um i was debate i i might as a side project, I was thinking about copying it into a series of tweets and then scheduling it like one an hour <laughs> to go out on my feed. Um, because the Haitian Declaration of Independence compared to the American Declaration of Independence is like oil and water. Like ours, the American Declaration is so prim and proper because the people who were in charge before the revolution were going to be the people in charge after. Like it it was already understood, right? But Haiti is this massive slave revolt where they ended up banishing all of the white people who lived there, except for the, except for the, um, the Poles, because Napoleon recruited Polish mercenaries and the Poles got to Haiti and realized what was going on and switched sides. And so <laughs> Polish people were allowed to stay. Every other white European was banned from the island. The Haitian Declaration of Independence is just ferocious <laughs> it is it is so they don't hold back they didn't hold back when they wrote it and having having a chance to have um my students look at that like this is and this is intense right like this is where this anger is coming from you know they had they had been enslaved for so long they tried to get free um rival or not rivalries um revolts are put down over and over again their so-called leadership turns on them. They were so mad and they had every right to be mad. And putting it in that context, I think helps them understand, like, this is why people are protesting in the streets now because they're mm -hmm. so mad and they haven't been listened to and they've been betrayed generation after generation. And we just don't have like the words for that yet, but it was so, and my training is not in history either. So I was coming at it as naively as, as anybody else would have been. Um, but there's a, there's a great podcast, um, Revolutions by Mike Duncan, um, who who goes through each major each major revolution in the world. He's on a break now. He stopped halfway through Russia, working on a book about the Marquis de Lafayette, who's like fat. And so like learning about all these like these fascinating figures. I think the time my, my students were the most horrified though was the Women's March on Versailles, um, <laughs> which do you know that have you have you heard of that before? The women, I don't have a lot of context. This massive hundred years of of riots and revolutions in, in France, right? You can trace up through like World War II, honestly, even to today, was this bread shortage and the housewives march on Versailles. Angry housewives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like telling that to, to sociology students and criminology students who think that history is all just boring battles. And like, no, like this changed everything. If this didn't happen, then Napoleon never rises to power and doesn't take over half of Europe, which doesn't cause like the Third Reich to come up and then try to take over half of Europe. And that's why this is important for you to understand. But before that was like, uh, <laughs> to me, it all goes back to like the Christian anarchists. 
honestly. Like, they showed everybody that you could do something different. But like, just hearing how these, these seemingly, these riots, right, that the state would have you believe are insignificant, like, actually really matter. You know, like, it's incredibly likely that a hundred years from now, I mean, I know it's a meme now, like, I feel sorry for the, the kids who have to study 2020 in the AP history one day, but, like, it's true. <laughs> this is, you're going to have textbooks of the White House surrounded with multiple levels of barricades because of, of this violence and, like, what change that could spark. Yeah, and I mean, I think when you think back to Ferguson. Yes. Again, and the protest village of Ferguson, people thought, like, well, this is going to blow over and we're never going to hear about it again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of people, myself included, that didn't want that to be the case. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't have today without that, right? Like, yep. you have to have these seeds that start mm-hmm. and revolutionize tomorrow. And so when you think about the impact of today, I'm not really interested in how it impacts next week but three or four years from now mm-hmm. we could be living in a different place yeah thankfully and that's i get so frustrated when people talk about people talk about it in higher ed they talk about it with the protests they talk about it with covid they talk about going back to normal yeah and i'm just like why do we want to do that <laughs> <laughs> like why yeah this is a chance for us to wrap it all and start over again like, yes <laughs> yeah yeah, and it just like one of the things that I've learned in, in in looking at all the revolutionary stuff is that people people will put up with so much crap, and people it takes so much to get people to to move on something that that is why the Trump administration has been so successful in a very weird definition of success, right? Over the last three and a half years is because the overwhelming majority of people can, they will tolerate so much abuse. And it just doesn't matter. Like, the economy tanks, whatever. Unemployment skyrockets, whatever. Um, It's not affecting me personally. And even if it is, that's okay. Because I'm not going to prison. I'm still alive. I got food on my table. They reopened the liquor stores, so I'm good. (laughs) And... I think, I yeah, and I, I think, I don't know, I make a lot of allegories to, like, biology because... Because you're a biologist, it's okay. <laughs> um, you know, I get, I, one of the common misconceptions in evolutionary biology is survival of the fittest. Uh-huh. It's not really survival of the fittest, it's survival of the good enough. organisms that have the most variation and elasticity that when bad things happen they're able to uh, to the population is able to adapt yeah right and over time that population figures out a new way to exist those are the populations that those are the species that survive mm-hmm. right are the ones that have variation in them and can bounce back from tragedy and i think right now in the u.s what we're seeing and really across the world is we're seeing this resistance to adaption, yeah. right? Because populations and societies are not embracing the variation that we have and saying, okay, what can tomorrow look like? We just want it to look like today. And that will be our downfall if we don't start 
adapting after crisis. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I don't understand. I don't understand people who look around and are like, I mean, because that's another like facet of revolutions, right? Is that you or, or we as a society look around and are like, this can't possibly be the best that it's ever going to be, <laughs> right? Like, it, this reminds me of the, uh, do you remember the part in the movie Dazed and Confused at the end, if you've seen that movie, where they're in the football field and um, they're kind of reminiscing on what high school was like, and I forget who it was, um, but he, he's like, this can't be, if I, if I ever grow up to say this was the best time of my life, just kill me. Like, I think a lot of people have that mentality, right? Like, this is a, like, why on earth would you look at this world now and be like, this is perfect, like, everything's great. Like, it's so, <laughs> there's so much terrible stuff. Why would you ever say, like, I just want to go back to how it was? Like, I miss that comfort. I miss being able to see my students and my colleagues, but I'm not willing to risk jeopardizing everybody else's health and well-being and all of the other ways people were suffering because I want to go to my office. Like that seemed pretty selfish. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's about me before we, right. <laughs> it's like, I'm not dealing with tragedy. So why would I want this to change? It's like, well, because your neighbor is dealing with tragedy. And I don't <laughs> understand what that's like. Keep saying tweets about like, how do you teach people to give a shit? Yes. Right? Like, oh, that is the crux of my that? job <laughs> to try to get people to do that. Yeah. And it's tough, right? Like I I can hit my students with a a barrage of theory about why crime happens, but they don't really care. They want to see like here's a documentary on the war on drugs and they want to see like the cops who are like the war on drugs has destroyed our career. Like, that's what they want, right? So, and they don't get that evidence. They don't get that experience, like, anywhere in the media. So, I've had to tell them, God, I've had I've had students who were so frustrated with, like, conversations from other students in class where they had volunteered to, to that class that they were survivors of sexual assault just to try to, like, ground it in something. Because, obviously, I can't, I cannot out people right um and just seeing like the horror on on some of the students faces i can remember one time we were talking about stress and uh gender differences in in stress that adolescents experience um and so the the students were just like you know and it's always the same things like here's ways that my parents are embarrassing here's way that ways that school sucks um my social life is hard um and then I remember one time a young woman brought up menstruation and the boys were like panicked in that, at that. And I was like, yeah, um, a study just came out that said, they, um, I forget what it was, but the, the pain is comparable to a heart attack. And the guys in my class were just so angry at that, that I remember walking away from that class thinking like, what am I going to do? with you mm-hmm. <laughs> like how can you not like, like why why is that something to get angry about like i understand why why all the football players are sitting there blushing because they've never had since health class heard that word before <laughs> yeah and they feel awkward hearing it coming from a guy uh who is supposed to be on their side i guess 
Uh, but then just the anger when I'm like, yeah, like for some women as painful as a heart attack and a guy, like that can't be true. <laughs> well, you're not as tough as you thought you were, I guess. I don't know. We are, we are so far afield from your, from your work, Kelly. So we should probably wrap it up. Um, and, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I guess with everything that we've talked about, a common thread is I am, I like to live my life as a cautious optimist. I say that mostly because I'm a Chicago Cubs baseball fan. Um, <laughs> cautious optimism is a way of life. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm cautiously optimistic that the changes we're seeing because of COVID and the conversations that we're having to have with our students because of the protests um, and the empathy that people seem to be showing to each mm-hmm. other um, will ultimately benefit higher education. I keep thinking about the number of injustices in higher ed that are coming to light right now. Um, one that we haven't really talked about as much is the switch to online education is really showing like we could have been doing these things to support our disabled students for so long. Yeah. And we haven't. Mm-hmm. But we could. Mm-hmm. Um, we could be providing more resources for them, and we have chosen not to. As a, as a unit, higher education has chosen not to by saying it's too difficult. Mm-hmm. Well, now we've done it. It's not too difficult anymore. Yeah. We've done it. Yeah, right? it, it wasn't that difficult um, at all, actually. It wasn't that difficult to begin with. You just had to do it under duress. <laughs> um, you know, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to come out the other side of this more aware and better off in a lot of ways than we were before. Um, and I don't think it's something we're going to see the effects of next year or five years from now. But I feel actually optimistic that by you know the time i've got tenure by the time you know i'm well into my career that we'll be seeing these kinds of changes and all because of the multiple types of revolution that are happening right now hopefully thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to come and talk with me thank you for having me it's been a fun time i have enjoyed getting to rant with you (laughs) captive audience i enjoy it Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. (laughs) So if you are untenured, and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of Our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.